All right, go ahead and navigate to John chapter 6 on your device or open your Bible there. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, that's our text. The topic, Jesus tells his closest disciples, one of you is a devil. The title of our message, keep your disciples close and the devil closer. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you, bowing our hearts as it were, wanting to receive the word of God. I pray that there would be no stubbornness, no resistance, Lord, to hearing your voice in our hearts. We'll recognize it easily, Lord, because it's love and grace, it's ministry, it's servanthood, it's all of the things that are good and glorious about you. And Lord, uh, we always want to leave different than we came in and different in a way that makes us more like Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. More than 200,000 people volunteered for what some call a suicide mission. We will send humans to Mars in 2023, Mars One founder Baz Lansdorp told Fox News in 2015. Ten volunteers would have a one-way ticket to the Red Planet. Space flight experts said Mars One had no chance of succeeding. It didn't get off the ground. No worries. SpaceX boss Elon Musk has vowed to establish a permanent Mars colony by 2050. He ominously added, a bunch of people will probably die at the beginning. It's amazing what people are willing to die for. Can you imagine that meeting? Out of 200,000 people, you get down to the 100, and then they're looking for 10 and said, you know, a bunch of people are going to die doing this, so go for it. Uh, they're willing to die to go to Mars. I, that's not my cup of tea, right? The Jews in our verses were not willing to die for Jesus. Crazy. Jesus told a crowded synagogue, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now that last phrase about giving his flesh describes a sacrificial death. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. These disciples counted the cost, we would say, of following Jesus. Jesus did not seem to be in any hurry to be their king and establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. He was talking about dying. It happened to be Passover, the annual celebration of the exodus from Egypt. Thousands of lambs would be offered in the temple. John the Baptist had called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It wasn't hard to put two and two together. A first century Jew wouldn't have known as much as we know looking back, but you can see that it's their language about sacrifice and death. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to be a sacrifice here. Death was too great a cost for the majority, and so they broke off following Jesus. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you count the cost of being a disciple, consider what you receive. And number two, when you count the cost of being a disciple, consider who you reveal. Let's take a look at what you receive in verses 60 through 66. It's become trendy to call believers Christ followers. If you would like to be called a Christ follower, that's fine with me. Uh, you know, it, it's not a bad thing. I prefer Christian. That's what I grew up with, I guess you'd say. And 
Uh, it is a word that's in the Bible, Christ-like. Uh, I understand being a follower of Christ. Uh, but we might want to start using the name disciple more frequently. It's a much more biblical determination. And the word was loaded with meaning in Jewish culture and custom. Listen to this description. The best students continued their study in Beth Midrash, meaning secondary school. They were taught by a rabbi of the community. A very few of the most outstanding Beth Midrash students sought permission to study with a famous rabbi, often leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time. These students were called Talmudim in Hebrew, which is translated disciple. There is much more to a Talmud than what we call student. A Talmud be, uh, wants to be like the teacher, to become what the teacher is. That meant that students were passionately devoted to their rabbi and noted everything he did or said. The rabbi-Talmud relationship was a very intense and personal system of education. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scripture, his student Talmudim listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. And so the crowd that uh, is called disciples... They fell away from following Jesus because they didn't want this Talmudim relationship. They, they didn't want to follow him that closely. They just wanted what they could get out of it. But for us, we are to be Talmudim in our thinking. When, it, when we talk about discipleship or being a disciple, it has this first century connotation of wanting to imitate the one we are discipled by, and that would be Jesus Christ. And so verse 61 when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Knew in himself doesn't necessarily indicate divine knowledge or a word of knowledge. They had already been complaining earlier in the chapter. Jesus could just as easily have overheard this. You always have a choice. You can complain or you can be content in the Lord. If you're not expressing contentment, you're complaining. And complaining is sin. Paul said we are to learn in whatever state to be content. Now, obviously, if you've got enough money coming in and uh, some secret source of gasoline uh, and things like that, you're content. It's easy to say, oh, I'm very content with my life. But when gasoline is $300 a gallon and uh, the President of the United States is talking about regime change in Russia and he's got his finger on a nuke, uh, you know, you may not be as content. Uh, and so Paul says, yeah, in any of those conditions, at any time, you are learning to be content because the other opposite of it is to complain and to complain is uh, to identify that you don't really trust the Lord. And so your choice, my choice. Don't think I never complain. I just don't complain to you. I complain to myself in the mirror. You ever do that? And then I talk myself out of it because I'm so handsome. I mean, why would you? I couldn't. I couldn't yeah. Offend is also translated stumbling block. And so Galatians 5.11, the Apostle Paul writes, I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. And then Paul and the Apostle Peter both quote from the Old Testament, which says that Jesus has become a stone of stumbling. So the offense of the cross, it's not just the fact that Jesus died on the cross, but that it convicts human beings as guilty sinners. 
The Jews believed they were saved by self-righteous works according to the law of Moses. They were therefore offended at the suggestion that they were not in their that they were yet in their sins rather. The thought that their Messiah must die as a sacrifice for their sins stumbled them. They were looking for a Messiah like Moses who would do miracles like Moses, who would throw off oppression like Moses, who would be a man like Moses that God used. And so the whole concept of who Jesus was was mind-boggling to these guys. And the idea that he must die didn't enter into their thinking. The cross is an offense because it says to every human being, Jew and Gentile, you are a sinner in need of a Savior to die as your substitute. And that's a very antiseptic way of putting it. That doesn't really offend too many people. But of all the insults we could level against people, I think sinner is the worst if we really understand what we're talking about. It describes them as, well, let's say, for example, instead of going up to somebody and say, you know what, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. You go up to them and you say, you're a depraved individual who deserves eternity in hell. Do you see Jesus on the cross? That should be you, beaten, bloodied, naked, dying a slow, shameful, criminal's agonizing death. Wow. Now, is anybody offended by that? If you're not a Christian, you should be this morning. It's offensive, it, or it's true, right? So I'm telling you that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're worse than Charles Manson. You might as well be Jeffrey Dahmer, because you're all going to the same place, right? I mean, it's an insult to be called a sinner. It's an offense. It, offend, it should offend people. Otherwise, I don't think they understand what we're saying. Verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Jesus spoke of dying and now ascending into heaven. He would obviously need to be resurrected. Now this is all information readily available to us in the New Testament, but again, it would be mind-boggling for a first century Jew. They certainly didn't expect their Messiah, if he did you know, come back from the dead, let's say, to go back into heaven without doing anything as far as they were concerned. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Think back to when Jesus met with Nicodemus. The Lord said to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He informed Nicodemus that he must be born again, born spiritually, and this is essentially the same thing he's doing in verse 63, only stated differently. John has a habit of saying the same thing in many different ways. God wants us to get it when it comes to spiritual things. He's gone to great lengths to talk to us in many, many different ways so that we will get it. President Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator. Our God is the greatest communicator. In Hebrews we read, at various times and in various ways, he spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. S.D. Gordon writes, Jesus was God spelling himself out in language humanity could understand. And so you read the Bible. Creation declares the glory of God. Conscience in your heart declares that there's a God. Then there are 
you know, uh, typologies and prefigurements and, uh, you know, similes and metaphors. There's poetry and wisdom literature. There's narrative. There are parables. Uh, just about anything you can think of in order to get truth, uh, you know, out there. And then God finally says, you know, some of you say, well, I'm a visual learner. You ever said that? You know, I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual learner. I'm too stupid to learn any other way. But, uh, you know, so you want to see it. And so God says, okay, Jesus Christ, if you've seen him, you've seen me. And we have seen him on the pages of scripture in history, acting and reacting and loving and, and saving. And so God is seeking people, right? He wants people to know him. It's not an exclusive club. He's done everything he can to reach people. When you get saved, God the Holy Spirit immerses you into the greater body of Christ, and he comes to live in you. You are so transformed by his presence that you can be described as a new creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. From the beginning is too much like in the beginning to be a coincidence. It's the same phrasing that John used at the beginning of this gospel. And he's just dropping this in here, this pearl, to remind us that Jesus is God, that he was with the Father and the Spirit forever in what we would call eternity past, for lack of a better word. And obviously he has perfect knowledge of the future, uh, which I don't think he's really made clear yet, but that's obvious. That means he knew who would betray him. More about that in just a moment. We cannot fully or even partially understand the relationship, for lack of a better word, between Jesus' deity and his humanity. Jesus was fully God and fully human. He did not cease to be God while being human. He added humanity to his deity when he came uh, in the virgin birth. He rose from the dead in a glorified human body and will remain the God-man for eternity. Jesus is going to have a human glorified body just like you and I. He's not going to have some other kind of body. He is the God-man, and that's remarkable. We do know from his own lips that while he was on earth, he was 100% subordinate by choice to the Father's will. He did only what his father told him to do. He said only what his father told him to say. He did it without using his deity, but by yielding himself to the Holy Spirit. We would see Jesus as the father's Talmud, the penultimate disciple. I don't know if I've ever really thought about that before. Jesus on earth, the God-man, is the great example of discipleship because he said, I only do what my father tells me to do and say. That's it. I am his disciple. I want to be like him. Of course, you know, it's the Godhead, but he's exampling what that means. And so this idea of being a disciple is a lot more rich and full than being a Christ follower. Christ follower, you know, to me it, it speaks of sometimes I follow and sometimes I don't. Christian even, well, I'm Christ-like. But what does that really mean? But, hey, are you going to be just like me? Are you going to be a Talmud? And, and that is really a powerful thing. Verse 65, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. 
I have said to you means that he was saying the same thing he had said earlier when he said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So again, if you don't understand one thing, you'll maybe understand the other. I confess to you, I find John hard to understand. He, of all the writers of the New Testament, uh, it, it just I, I don't connect with John the way I connect with the Apostle Paul. He just doesn't seem as logical. Uh, but I'm coming to appreciate that he's willing to say things in a bunch of different ways so that everybody in the audience gets it. And, and you know, think of, think of how eclectic it is, you know, uh, young people, old people, people who are retired, people of different ethnicities, people of different backgrounds, uh, you know, all having to learn about Jesus Christ. And so John says, well, let me put it this way then, and maybe you'll understand. Now, if this were all the information we had, we might conclude that Jesus died for a select few people. Let me take this opportunity to mention something scholars call proof texting. Proof texting uses a verse or verses to prove or justify a theological position without regard for the context of the passage or other verses that clarify. I'll give you an example of proof texting that I hope you do not follow. Jesus, when he was asked about taxes, we've got to pay taxes here pretty soon, right? When he was asked about taxes, he said, whose inscription is on the coin? They said, Caesar. Then famous words, right? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So I've decided that because we are not ruled by Caesar anymore, and our money doesn't have Caesar's picture on it, it has George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, all the good guys, that we don't have to pay taxes. It's biblical, right? It's also criminal. And there are plenty of other passages in the Bible that say we should obey the government that God has raised up for us. And so you can't proof text and just say, hey, I don't pay taxes because you're not Caesar. Uh, you know, they, or, or, hey, I'm a sovereign nation. Sure you are. You're going to be a sovereign nation in jail. And, and so that's fine. What's your name, sovereign nation? You know, but anyway, uh, so proof texting. So anyway, uh, Jesus will go on to clarify all of this in chapter 12. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, he will draw all people to himself. Jesus' death on the cross draws all men, and whosoever will believe are saved. Not all who are drawn will be saved, but those who believe are. I came across this quote that you may find comforting as your mind is rattling around with all of these deep thoughts about uh, these uh, doctrines. This is a great quote. God will not hold us responsible to understand the mysteries of election, predestination, and the divine sovereignty. The best and safest way to deal with these truths is to raise our eyes to God and in deepest reverence say, O oh Lord, thou knowest. Now listen to this. I like this. Prying into them may make theologians but it will never make saints. I found that to be true. People give up love and grace and unity in order to become intellectual and think they have all the answers. And so, you know, when people come in, let's say if somebody came in for marriage counseling and their marriage was on the rocks, I wouldn't say, well, what do you believe about predestination? Uh, tell, tell me your version of the doctrine of election right now. And, and that, that is no, I'm, I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are but they don't have anything to do with living the Christian life. They don't have anything to do with saving people and, and you know, 
uh, helping hurting people and broken people and things like that. So, so study all that, keep it in perspective, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verse 66, actually 666, from that time, of course, you under the chapter and verse references were never part of the Bible, but this is a great 666 verse. From that time, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They identified as disciples until it became clear Jesus was seeking Talmudim. For them, sadly, the things of earth grew strangely desirable instead of his glory and grace. Counting the cost can focus too much on the potential sacrifices a disciple might have to endure. I mean, isn't that what you think of? Count the cost and say, well, I'll lose some friends and I might not be able to this and that. Here's a quick list of what members of the body of Christ receive as disciples. Eternal life. Permanent forgiveness of past, present, and future sins, including the removal of guilt. The indwelling Holy Spirit, enabling us to obey God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. A life of discovering God's works that he has before ordained for us to discover. The commission to share the gospel that can change a person forever. The fellowship of the saints. The promise of being part of the first resurrection. A glorified human body with no tendencies of sinful flesh. Free will that is like God's and therefore incapable of disobedience. A place of responsibility in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Judging angels. Eternal rewards that are secure. Mansions in the city, New Jerusalem. Reunion with believing loved ones. Everlasting life. No more tears. Permanent fellowship with the Godhead. And that just scratches the surface. What does counting the cost have to do with that? You'd be a fool to not go with Jesus, seeing what he has for you. It seems silly to use that phrase, and that's why Charles Spurgeon writes, Brothers and sisters, see the happiness which is promised to us. Behold the heaven which awaits us. Forget for a while your present cares. Let all your difficulties and your sorrows vanish for a time. Live for a while in the future which is so guaranteed by faithful promises that you may rejoice in it even now. The veil which parts us from our great reward is very thin. Hope gazes through its gauzy fabric. Faith with eagle eyes penetrates the mist which hides eternal delights from longing eyes. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But he has revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we, in the power of that Spirit, have known, believed, and anticipated the bliss which every hour is bringing nearer to us. Sometimes I wonder why we don't just get up and read these old sermons rather than come up with our own. But what a great way of putting it. Now, secondly, when you count the cost of being a disciple, consider who you reveal. There's something fun about people doing impressions of others. It's one of my favorite things to watch. Uh, who, anybody here remember Rich Little? All right, yeah, first service, man. They just refuse to respond. They, they love to see me fail up here, but anyway... Pam and I had the uh, privilege once of seeing him perform live, and, and what a blast that was. The Apostle Paul shared his understanding of being a disciple when he said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Jesus. Disciples are privileged to reveal the Savior to uh, sinners as we imitate him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? The desertion was so substantial that perhaps only the twelve remained. 
The title of the 12 is a unique identifier for uh, that group of followers of Jesus. Even though Judas will turn out to betray the Lord, they're still going to be called the 12, and that's why Peter and the boys in the, early in the book of Acts replace Judas with Matthias, because they are the 12, and not just 12 guys. They're, they can't be the 11 or the 13 because of what God is trying to get across to them. They are the 12. Everything Jesus did, he did for others. He said, I am the servant of all, not to be served, but to serve. So this question was not because he was depressed or forlorn or sad that people had left. It was for the benefit of the 12, for them to decide, do I want to be a Talmud? Are we the Talmudim, or are we just disciples who are following for what we can get? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. How much time did you spend going somewhere else looking for peace and joy? Or what were the things you pursued hoping to fill the emptiness in your heart? I'd like to address any person here who's not a believer. We like to say that God has placed what he calls eternity in your heart. He alone can satisfy you both now and forever. Seeking satisfaction from any other source is like putting diesel fuel in a gasoline engine. You don't get very far before you sputter and fail. You were meant to have fellowship with God, to worship God. And until you receive that and enter into that, you'll never be satisfied. Alan Redpath, write, uh, Redpath rather writes, So often multitudes of people gather around some broken reservoir of this world, trying to satisfy their thirst for they know not what. They grumble about their troubles and complain about their lot. But how few of them run to the one who said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Paul said in Philippians chapter 5, Jesus is like a donut. Without Jesus, life is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Remember that, the donut man? Even though I messed it up, you can still, you know. And there is no Philippians 5, by the way, so... Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Previously in the Gospel of John, the Twelve indicated their belief Jesus was the Christ, meaning the promised Messiah. A better translation of Son of the living God is the Holy One of God. Jesus spoke of sacrificing himself. It would obviously be accepted because he was holy and spotless before the Lord. Those who quit following Jesus had ulterior motives, such as free food, healings, the overthrow of Roman domination. If there were flyers being handed out in those days, you know, to come to Jesus, that's what they would have had on there. Free food. Be part of the loaves and fishes miracles. Uh, you know, everybody's going to be healed. Come to the healing ministry of Jesus. And then we're going to march on Jerusalem and take over and kick the Romans out. I mean, that, that was their thing. And, and, you know, it sounds a lot like some contemporary Christian ministries, uh, you know, in terms of what they want to accomplish. You can all be healed. Uh, you know, Jesus will meet all of your needs, your material needs, and let's take over the government. Uh, and so, you know, be, be careful out there. It's a, it's, a, it's a minefield. Those who quit following Jesus had ulterior motives. Millions call themselves by his name, A.W. Tozer writes, and pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, 
between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love. And God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout his life. The twelve were learning that Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. He is the end in itself, knowing him, growing in that knowledge. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Just when things were getting good, Jesus drops this bomb. Are you guys going to leave? No, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Oh, man, that's great to hear because one of you is a devil. It should read, one of you is the devil. D.A. Carson writes, explaining, the supreme adversary of God so operates behind failing human beings that his malice becomes theirs. Jesus can discern the source and labels it appropriately. And so um, he's not necessarily saying that uh, Satan was, or that uh, Judas is possessed by the devil, just that the devil has taken him captive to do his will. Yesterday, Jesus was followed by a multitude of folks who identified as disciples, upward of 10,000, maybe 15,000. After delivering one sermon, there were 12 left. Of the 12, one would turn out to be the devil. It's not a very successful ministry. I mean, this is, uh, you know, subtraction. The Calvary Chapel of the subtraction or something, but... Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But do you really want the devil on your team? Is that a choice you would make when you're picking the 12? I always like to point out the apparent foolishness of God's plan of salvation. You might call his plans fragile. And really, we need to get into this. Because we have methods of the world and we think like the world because we grew up in it. And when we look at Jesus and God the Father, everything they do is upside down and backwards. If you and I were planning for Jesus to come and die on the cross and rise from the dead, we would start in Revelation 19 with him coming on a great white steed, saying, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm going to die for the sins of the world right now and offer myself a sacrifice, and tomorrow we're going to be in the kingdom. Sounds good, right? And, and uh, wow. God says, no, yeah, I have a plan. You're going to come as a baby, born of a virgin. Nobody will believe it, but... And then I've got to get you born in Bethlehem because that's what the scripture said. And so there's going to be this census. And uh, then you're going to be born not to any glory, but to, you know, maybe some angels will sing, but it'd be uh, farm animals and shepherds. And, and then throughout Jesus' entire life, everything that happens is ridiculous. And, you know, all the Old Testament stories are crazy. Let's march around this city seven times, see what that does. Stop the sun, Lord. Uh, I mean, it's insane. We would pick none of those strategies. But the foolishness of God uh, is wisdom when it comes to salvation. Have you thought about what it would be like for Jesus to have this knowledge about Judas? If you were the leader of a ministry with 12 assistants and you knew one of them was going to betray you, could you really treat that person the same as all the others? And by betray, we mean betray you by having you murdered. The best in you might want to take him aside and try to avoid betrayal. Try and talk him out of it. The worst in you would justify almost any negative extreme action you can think of to eliminate the threat. 
Reading the Gospels doesn't seem as though the 11 had any indication it was Judas. Jesus didn't wink when he said that. He didn't say, you know, one of you is the devil. One of you is the devil, and his initials are J. Udis. He didn't do any of that. He didn't tell the inner circle of Peter, James, and John to watch his six. We see these guys with Jesus a lot, doing special things. He doesn't say, hey guys, I can't tell you too much about it because it's secret. If I tell you, I have to kill you, but watch my six, especially when the treasurer is around, okay? He never sent Judas on a mission that might get him killed or arrested. Judas, I've got a, I've got a great ministry for you. <laughs> that's what we would do, right? Keep your enemies close? No, that, that's not what we do. John tells of Judas' betrayal early in this story and in the context of being a disciple. One obvious lesson is that not everyone who professes Jesus possesses Jesus. We know that. But... Jesus is having to set aside, having set aside rather the voluntary use of his deity was the Father's Talmud. We established that. He was therefore enabled by God, the Holy Spirit, to treat Judas the way the Father wanted him to. He was supplied with sufficient grace. He was able to deal with the situation. Now, each of us will have to apply that ourselves. It doesn't solve every problem. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, not... um, you know, I mean, we forgive everybody, but it doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with everybody that's hurt you or wronged you or things like that. But just the, the big concept here, I think you get the idea. Jesus hung around with Judas, and he treated him just like the other guys. Earlier we quoted the Apostle Paul, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Our word mimic derives from imitate. A mimic is a person who copies someone else in behavior and speech in every way. And so that's what Jesus was to the Father, and that's what Paul was to Jesus, and that's what we should be to Paul and Jesus. I Love Lucy and Harpo Marx performed what is called the mirror routine. How many know who Harpo Marx is? Raise your hand. Man, I love second service. (laughs) Must be, oh, never mind. Uh, How many of you know Lucille Ball? And how many of you have seen the mirror routine? It's, it's a phenomenal thing. Uh, Lucy is dressed just like the famous Marx brother. There's no mirror actually between them. They're just they're like this close to each other. But everything Harpo does, Lucy does backwards as if it's in the mirror. And it's just, it's phenomenal. It's really a great routine. It goes on for about three hilarious minutes. Our mirror routine is described this way. But we all, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're told by James in his epistle that the mirror is the Word of God. We must read the Word in a way to discover Jesus, to see Him reflected in it, revealing to us the nature of God so we might reveal it to others. We want to mimic Jesus. Uh, We want to do what he did and say what he said. In a sense, only do what he tells us to do and only say what he tells us to say uh, in a beautiful submission that brings us into a place of worship. D.L. Moody writes, A rule I have had for years, treat the Lord Jesus as a personal friend. His is not a creed, a mere doctrine. It is he himself. 
that we have.